Hey, I'm Michael Wood, lead pastor at First West. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here in just a second, we're gonna dive into God's word and to see what it says about who he is, about who we are, and about the hope that can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that today God's word will encourage you, it'll challenge you, and it'll allow you to see that no matter where we find ourselves, there's always hope because of Jesus Christ. So let's dig in and see what God has for us today in his word. Good morning. Man, it is so good to be back with you. It's good to have my voice back, uh, thank goodness. Uh, and if you're here today and you are a first-time guest with us, I just say thank you for being our guest. Man, you're our honored guest. We're so glad that you have joined us. So whether you're here in the room or watching online or TV, man, we're so glad that you have joined in to be a part of worship today with First West. I want to invite you to take your Bible. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's where we're going to be in our journey through the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm excited to remind you that next Sunday, this coming Sunday, October 16th, uh, will be the first Sunday of our chapel service that will be taking place in our newly renovated Feasel Chapel. That will be at 8 a.m. to be uh, led uh, by Brad Jett. will lead worship in there uh, with piano. I'll be preaching. Uh, and so if, uh, if that is a service that would interest you, uh, you're more than welcome to join us next Sunday at 8 a.m. for our chapel service. Our 1030 service will continue just as it has been. Uh, but we're excited about what God is doing. We're excited to be adding another service here at First West. And so um, as you're getting there to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I want you to ponder for a moment. Uh, what was it when you were a kid? Now, I know we've got kids in the room, so you can maybe help us out today. What was it when you were a kid? And you go shopping with your parents, specifically clothes shopping. And you would see this rack of clothes. And what was unique about this rack is it was a round rack of clothes. And so clothes would go all the way around it. And there was something inside of that rack of clothes. It was like a magnet that pulled every single little kid into those clothes. Are you with me? You know what I'm talking about? You just had to go in, right? I don't remember what you did in there, but you just had to go in. And then you'd come out and you'd find another one. You'd go in that one. You'd go out. Kids in the room, are you with me? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, some of you. Teenagers, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, y'all are the worst offenders, right? And listen, as a parent, right, it can be so frustrating, right? Because like you're just here shopping, you get a couple things, and now you feel like a terrible parent because your kid is gone, right? They've gone into this vortex known as this, uh, this rack, this circular rack of clothes. And as a parent, sometimes you get so frustrated, and honestly, you get so scared that there's a moment of reckoning that comes, right? And so you, you finally find that child, maybe after a moment of panic, and you just begin to let your child have it, right? Where were you? What were you doing in there, right? And you look over and you see some young person with a camera videotaping you, right? And you're like, I don't even care, right? Because I couldn't find them, and now I've found them, right? And listen, all of us at some level have been there, whether that was with a child, whether that was with a friend that you were at an amusement park with, you couldn't find, right? There are moments in life where we feel our emotions rise and we feel this need to fully express maybe the frustration or the fear inside. Well, today we're going to see this moment from the Apostle Paul. Now we know, many of us in here, we know the story of the Apostle Paul. He was raised in the Jewish faith. He would say, man, uh, of the Jews, I was the greatest, a Jew among Jews. But he has this amazing moment in Acts chapter 9 where Jesus appears to him on the road to Damascus and it changes everything for him. 
He understands that Jesus truly is the Messiah. And now he goes from a life of persecuting people who would follow what he calls the way, those who are following the way of Christ, to now he is an apostle. He would say, uh, least, uh, I'm sorry, least of the apostles is one untimely born the uniqueness of his apostleship. And so now he is pursuing Christ as he's encouraging and challenging people to know Christ. He's planting churches and he's caring for these churches along the way. And in part of caring for these churches, yes, there is a time to nurture, but there is also a time to confront. And while last week we looked at the beginning of chapter 11 where he said to the church, listen, I praise you in this. I praise you that you're following the traditions, you're following the apostles' teaching. Today we are going to see the heart of Paul in caring for people in a way that calls him to confront. I want you to look with me beginning in verse 17. We're going to stand in honor of reading, in the honor of reading of God's word. We're going to read through verse 26. We'll look at more today in that passage, but today... Let's begin in verse 17, and we get to hear Paul get a little confrontational. He says, now in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, but for worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you, so that you who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together then, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. For what I received from the Lord, for what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray together. Father, today we submit ourselves under the authority of your word. And we pray that Spirit of God, as we've just asked as a congregation, that you would fill us again. That Spirit of God, you would use the preaching of your word to do just that. That you would bring that encouragement or conviction or challenge. Whatever it is that we need in our life, Lord, we, we humbly posture ourselves now to receive the inspired word of God into our life. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we can see here that Paul is making a shift in the topics that he's addressing with the church. Remember, we've told you you've been with us in this journey that in the first six chapters, Paul's dealing with things that he's heard, but now he's getting to things that, he's, uh, that they have written to Paul about. And in verse 11, really through verse 14, we've seen Paul make this shift where before in 8 through 10, chapters 8 through 10, he was talking about how they were living their lives outside of the church. That's when we were talking about food, sacrifice to idols, and the impact that would have on others. But beginning in verse 11 through verse, through chapter, I'm sorry, in chapter 11 through chapter 14, we see that he makes this shift to now dealing with how they're living their lives 
inside the church. And so he's giving corrective instruction to them in this passage here. And we hear, I think, the forcefulness of his concern and his desire to bring correction. In 1 Corinthians 11, we see that Paul considers, or Paul corrects, a considerable abuse in the church's unity that was being portrayed in how they were taking the Lord's Supper. Our takeaway today is this, is that the Lord's Supper enhances church unity and our intimacy with the Lord. The Lord's Supper enhances church unity and our intimacy with the Lord. Now, just to remind you, if you're not familiar with the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus, as we just read here. It was on the night that he was betrayed. He was celebrating with his closest followers the Passover meal. This was a yearly festival. It was a yearly meal that they would celebrate as a reminder of God's physical deliverance of the people of Israel out of the bondage of slavery in Egypt. But on that night, Jesus took that meal and gave it its full meaning. That there is a greater deliverance that comes. And it is not physical, but it is spiritual. And that he was showing them that he was that unblemished lamb that would give his life, would give his body and his blood to be a sacrifice to release humanity from the bondage of sin. And so even today, as we will do today before we leave, that the church since that moment has continued to take the Lord's Supper on a regular rhythm is a reminder for us of several things. One, it's a reminder to us of what his death cost. The death for our sins. It's a reminder to us of the benefits of that death. The benefit for us because of him. It's a reminder for us of our dependence on his, on his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so it helps us to remember, but it also is a moment for us to proclaim. To proclaim his death until he comes again. As we look at this passage in verse 17 to the end of chapter 11, I think there's three things that he gives us here. The first thing that we're going to dig into today is this. Paul gives the people a sharp criticism. A sharp criticism, right? We see that already when he says, listen, I don't praise you in this, right? Paul, Paul's not hiding this. He's not sugarcoating. He's saying, I can't give you an attaboy or a participation trophy on this. There is no affirmation that is coming your way in light of the situation that's in front of him. And as Paul is laying this out, he begins with the expectation. If you're taking notes, you can just write that under that first point, the expectation, Look with me in verse 17 and 18. He says, in giving you the instruction, I do not praise you since you come together. If you write in your Bible, you can circle that word, that phrase, come together. Since you come together, not for better, but for worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together, you can circle that again. As a church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Look with me over in verse 20. He says, when you come together then, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? So three times here in just a few verses, he uses this similar phrase, come together, come together, come together. It's a reminder to the people of God and to the church at Corinth of the uniqueness of the body of Christ. See the very beginning of it. In Acts chapter 2, the beginning of the church, 
where the people of God would come together. They would break bread together. They had everything in common. They were the ecclesia, the called out ones. And we see throughout the New Testament this understanding of those that are in Christ, that have repented from their sin and trusted in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, committed to follow him with his life. There is a relational component in which when we say brother and sister in Christ, that is not just a nice thing to say or something to say when you forget someone's name, that that is a reality. Are you with me on that? You're with me. All right. But it is a reality of the, the relationship, the nature of the relationship, the bond that comes under the unified confession that Jesus is Lord. In a later letter to Corinth, Paul is going to say to them, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice, become mature, be encouraged, be of the same mind, be at peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. He's giving that charge to them, to be of the same mind, to be one, to be unified. Later on in this letter, in chapter 12, we're going to see the reminder that we are all one in Christ, whether Jew or Greek or slave or free, that we were all given one spirit to drink. So the expectation that as the body of Christ, that there is a, there is a family orientation to who we are. And the understanding is that as brothers and sisters in Christ, even in the uniqueness of our diversity, and we're going to get to a lot of that next week, but in the uniqueness of our diversity, there is an expectation that brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of age, regardless of anything else, that we come together. But I want you to see not just the expectation, but I want you to see the issue. Look at the issue here. Look at me in verse 21. For at the meal... Each one eats his own supper. So one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Now some of you are thinking, well, what did they put in their little cups that they had for the Lord's Supper, right? little background information here to understand at the church of Corinth. And in many of the churches of that time, when they would take the Lord's Supper, it looked very different than what we did doesn't mean that they were right and we were wrong or that we were right, they're wrong. It was just different. They would have, to coincide with the taking of the Lord's Supper, they would have what was called an agape feast or a love feast. It was a good old Baptist potluck meal. They would gather together and they would share a, an actual meal together. And after sharing the actual meal together, it would be at that point that they would take the Lord's Supper together. So we see here in verse 20 when he's referencing you come together to eat the Lord's Supper. But then when you begin to hear some of this verbiage, it, you would really have a hard time wrapping your brain around what we understand, how we take the Lord's Supper, and the things that Paul's saying here. But if we understand culturally that they're sharing a common meal together before they take the Lord's Supper, then we can understand the issue at hand. And here's the issue. Is that when they were coming together... There would be a, an elite, if you will, of the body, probably the wealthy of the group, that they would come together and they would find themselves in a small room with a great spread in front of them. And then you would have everyone else that would find themselves outside that room, maybe not even in the house or wherever it was that they were meeting, that would be outside, not just with not as good a food, but possibly with no food. 
Some believe that it could be that the wealthy, because they didn't have to work because of their wealth, they would get to these agape feasts early, therefore getting the best seats with the best food. But those that were required to work, by the time they got off work and they made their way to this feast, all the preferred seats were gone. All the good food was gone. And they're just left hungry. And so the issue here is that you have believers in the church that are bringing division to the body of Christ because of a self-serving heart. We want to get to the agape feast where we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We want to get there early because we want to get the preferred seat. We want to make sure we're in the room with this person. We want to make sure that we don't miss out on this food because we definitely don't want to eat her food because if she brings it, we're just not going to eat at all. And so Paul is understanding what's taking place here. And he's giving, you see the strong contrast that he's giving them. Look at what he says. He says, listen, you were were devouring, in verse 21, each one eats his own supper. The idea is you're devouring your own supper. And so we see the contrast that's taking place. So one person's hungry while one person gets drunk. He's, He's showing the extremes here of eating and drinking. One has nothing to eat, while the other, when it comes to drink, they have more than their fill. And so with this, it's causing this division in the body. Any of you in here, your family, you still celebrate family reunions? Do you do that? My family does. For the last, like, 65 years, our family on my mom's side has done family reunions. Initially, it started out at the lake. They would go to the lake, they would fish, they would ski, they would tube, they would do all this. Today they get together and play double nines, dominoes. I don't know who made that executive decision, but they missed it, right? We went from the lake fishing and hanging out to playing dominoes. But that's what it is. And every year the family gets together and people will fly in from from the northeast and from the northwest and from California and and usually we'll gather somewhere in Texas and we'll get together for an extended weekend and and we do that. We play some 42. Are there any 42 fans in here? Some Domino 42 fans? We'll we'll play uh, dominoes. We'll spend time together. We'll go eat together, right? And what is the point of that? Well, it's to beat all your relatives in dominoes, right? To remind them once again who's champ. No, the whole point is to be together, right? Well, I want you to imagine that in this coming summer, our family reunion, that that our family gets together for the family reunion, and it's Saturday afternoon, we're getting ready to go eat dinner, and, and so we start asking, now, where are we going for dinner tonight? And you start seeing some awkward looks on people's faces. So what's wrong? What's the matter? You soon come to find out that about half the group have concert or have tickets to go to a concert that night. I don't know what concert they're going to. What concert are they going to? Who are they going to see? Somebody tell me. Some of you are like, I can't say, Pastor. I better not say. Def Leppard. They're going to see Def Leppard, right? <clears throat> I just picture my family and family reunion at Def Leppard. Anyways, so, right, whoever it is, but they're gone to this concert, right? What's breakfast going to be like the next morning? It ain't going to be good, is it? What about for all of us that wanted to go see Def Leppard, but we didn't know the family was going to see Def Leppard? And what happens is where a moment where the family is to come together, and there is a group that is saying, 
Listen, in this moment, it's really not about the family. It's about what I want most. And so Paul here is seeing that there are these believers, these brothers and sisters that in a moment to be celebrating the Lord's Supper at this agape feast, all they're doing is being concerned with themselves. And what's the result? Well, there's factions. There's division. We see that he uses that word in verse 19. The idea of factions is actually where we get the word schism. When you think about a a division, right, it's to cause people to be angry at one another, to not like one another, to to think of one another as enemies. And in this division, he gives in verse 22 this rhetorical rebuke. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Listen to what he says. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So we see the the seriousness of which Paul is taking this. I mean, he's laying it on these believers that are taking their elite status or their wealth or whatever it is, their ability to get there early, the self-serving nature. And he is being very direct with them and saying, listen, when you do this, you are despising the church of God. That's a strong word, isn't it? To despise, it means to think that something has no value or that something is worthless. Again, one of the uniquenesses of the body of Christ, one of the most powerful witnessing tools that we have in our world is that we can be so different and yet under this confession that Jesus is Lord, we are one, we are one body. And so for these believers in their arrogance, in their pride, in their selfishness, what are they doing? They're they're despising it. They're they're destroying the uniqueness of what the body of Christ is. And so he begins here with this sharp criticism of their behavior. What are some takeaways for us in this section? Let me just give you one that should... I think open our eyes, verse 17, just a reminder when he says, when you come together, he says, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Church, let your showing up to a religious event, don't assume that that just means that it is going to be valuable. Right? If, if, if you find yourself in a nature of what people label a prayer meeting and you show up and there's very little prayer and there's a lot of gossip, You aren't gathering for the better, but for the worse, right? When you show up for what is said to be a Bible study and you show up and a Bible never comes out and somebody just talks about what they think, you're not gathering for the better, you're gathering for the worse. And in this situation, while they were showing up for this agape feast, this potluck meal to celebrate the Lord's Supper, to do this significant ritual in the life of the church, he's saying, just because you're gathering doesn't mean it's good. In fact, it's worse. Second takeaway for this is just a reminder for us as a church, we better be a church that values community, not just a sense of we sit in a room together, but that we are assured that in this congregation of First West, that there is no fracturing of relationships because somebody values uh, themselves over others. That there's no division that takes place. We need to be willing to ask ourselves if our actions, thoughts, and beliefs about others see them as less than and not as true brothers and sisters in Christ. Because for Paul, this was a very, very serious issue. And so we see here in verse 17 through 
22, where he's dealing with this serious issue that he's fed up about the self-serving nature of what's taking place here. And his desire, his loving desire to correct this misbehavior, he's going to go to the strongest source possible. Look at me in verse 23. We're going to see here an inspired instruction. An inspired instruction. He begins here, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. And we're going to stop there for a moment. Paul's going to use a little wordplay here to communicate this, but I, I want you to hear the, the forcefulness of what he's going to say and point them to. You may remember back over in, in former chapters, Paul would say at times, listen, this is, I, this is me speaking, not the Lord. Do you remember that? He would say, uh, not the Lord, but I say, right? And, and, and we, we helped you to understand in those moments that he's not saying that Jesus doesn't have an opinion, opinion on it or this is just Paul's thought, his opinion. When he said that, he was saying, listen, Jesus has not directly said anything about this issue, but this is me speaking as an apostle. There were some things that he could point directly to what Jesus had said, and he would point them to that. But other times he would say, not the Lord, but I say. But here, in the midst of this self-serving um, actions that the church was taking, that some of the church were taking, look at what he says. For what I received from the Lord, I passed on to you. Paul's saying, I'm just a conduit here. So as you're looking at your behavior, as you're considering your action, as Paul's bringing it before them and how they're acting in this manner, he's going to point them not to just what he thinks, or what he feels, he's passing on them to the source of the nature of the Lord's Supper itself. So he reminds them that on that night when Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And after he'd given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which has been poured out for you. Whenever you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Why would Paul in this moment try to correct this misbehavior by going into the nature of the Lord's Supper? I, I think it's pretty clear. It's because when we look at the sacrifice of Christ and laying down his body and his blood for the sake of sinners, it is the most self-giving act the world has ever seen. And so in the face of these people in the church in Corinth that are uh, approaching this Lord's Supper, this agape feast and the Lord's Supper, they're approaching it in such a self-serving manner. He's going to say, listen, you are coming to this, to this celebration. You are coming to this remembrance in a self-serving way. Do you not even consider that what you're doing at that moment is celebrating the most self-giving act the world has ever seen? And I want you to catch this. I, I want you to catch there at the very end of verse 26. He says, for as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. I love that verse. If you've been here, if you've been a part of First West, you know that I quote that verse every single time we take the Lord's Supper on the back end of the Lord's Supper. But even this week, looking at that verse, just being reminded with fresh eyes of that phrase, you proclaim. You proclaim. There is a message that is sent. When you take the Lord's Supper, there is a message that is being communicated. And Paul is riled up in this moment because what they are communicating with their actions is one thing, and the supper in which they are taking is communicating something completely different. 
This is my body which is broken for you. It is an act of self-giving. This is my blood which is poured out for you. It is an act of self-giving. And so he says, you're acting this way, but the inspired instruction that we see in the gospel is this. And so he lands the plane in a sense here, beginning in verse 27 with the last thing, a solemn warning. A solemn warning that he's going to give. Let's read beginning in verse 27. We'll go through the end of the chapter. He says, so then whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. In this way, let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. Whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are sick and ill, or why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Verse 33, therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. Now go back with me to verse 27. If you're writing in your Bible, I want you to circle those first two words, so then. So we want to be good students of the Bible. When we see a phrase like so then, we see that this is a connection to what he's just been talking about. So he's laid down the expectation. The expectation is that you come together as the body of Christ. He's talked about the issue. The issue is that they weren't doing that, that there were those that were self-serving, that were being an affront to others in the body of Christ. By They were eating the good stuff, and they were leaving brothers and sisters with nothing to eat. We see that he points them to the ideal of the self-giving nature of the gospel and the thing that they were actually there to celebrate. It was not self-serving, but it was self-giving, the Lord's Supper in and of itself. In, in all of that foundation that he's laid, he's now going to give them instruction for what to do moving forward. So then, let's know what he says here. You talk about a solemn warning. Whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. So what we see here, if you're taking notes, you write this under the third point, the cost is great. The cost is great to eat in an unworthy manner. How great is it? What well, we see in verse 27, he says it's a sin against the body and the blood of Christ. Think about that. Think about what he's saying there. You'll be liable for the very death that they were there to proclaim as salvation at this table. It's, it, it's significant what he's saying here, the guilt that would come on them. To profane the meal as they were doing because of their actions was to place themselves under the same liability as those responsible for that death in the first place. You think Paul wants them to understand the significance of what they're doing and their behavior? Absolutely. This isn't just a, hey, do a little better. He's wanting them to feel the weight, to feel the complete disconnect of their actions among brothers and sisters in Christ and what it is that they are there to celebrate. The cost is great, not only in, in the relationship to Christ, but to ourselves. Look at me in verse 29. Forever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30, he's going to give us examples of that. 
This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. That is a wordplay that he's using there for death. Again, I want you to catch the weight here. Because of these actions are taking place, what Paul understands is that there is discipline from the Lord that is coming for those that are taking the Lord's Supper in this manner. Judgment is coming on them. This is not a judgment of losing their salvation, but he is saying that there are, look at what it says here, there are many, many that are sick and ill and those that have died. Why? Because they're not honoring the Lord in this. Because they are not honoring the self-giving nature that we see in Christ and how they're treating one another. So hear me clearly. Some of you may be wondering in light of a verse like that. Every time that you are sick or any time in our lives that we may experience the death of someone that we love, it isn't directly connected to a specific sin. Okay, Just because you get sick doesn't mean, oh my gosh, there's a sin in my life that I need to go to the Lord and get forgiveness from. I believe that in a fallen world in which we live, sometimes we just get sick. But I think it would be wrong to say that that doesn't ever happen. I think we see the example here. There, there is a judgment that, that comes. And so in this warning, I want you to see that the cost is great, so the examination is critical. Look with me in verse 31. If we were properly judging ourselves, what does that mean? In Corinth, it means this. Hey, guys, we probably shouldn't be doing this. It's probably in right for us to be in this small room with all of our favorite people eating all this really good food while our brothers and sisters are out here and they're hungry. We probably shouldn't be doing it. That's what it means to judge yourself, to have an awareness, a discernment, to listen to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, right? If we were properly judging ourselves, what? We would not be judged. That's the divine judgment that comes from him. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. So what do we see here? We see there is an importance to that examination, a willingness to test the genuineness of something by testing. So Paul says when you come to this moment of taking the Lord's Supper and to take this uh, where you're celebrating and remembering the self-giving nature of the gospel, We should examine ourselves, examine our lives. In the context of what Paul's saying here, examining the relationships among brothers and sisters in Christ. Examine to assure that we're not taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Now here's the reality, all of us in here today, we know that we come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, don't we? We know the Bible says that we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And even after that moment of repenting of our sin and coming to faith in Christ and desiring to follow him, we know that there is still sin that shows up in our life. But there's a call here for us to examine ourselves, to allow the Lord's Supper in this context to enhance the unity of the body. To consider, are there relationships among my brothers and sisters in Christ in this body that I know I need to seek forgiveness from? I need to go and offer forgiveness. Maybe you're here today, and as you think about the relationships in your life, maybe you've become a part of our church because there was some issue at your former church. And I, would, I believe that Paul would say this, you need to make that relationship right, even if that's not the church that you're a part of anymore. 
Because this is more than just a local congregation. I think he's speaking here of the body of Christ. And so he ends it here in verse 33 when he says, Therefore, in light of this, therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. Some believe that that is wait for one another. Again, the idea of those that maybe get there early, he's saying, wait for one another. Would this truly be a family reunion event? The congregation, brothers and sisters, all together under that confession that Jesus is Lord. Verse 34, if anyone's hungry, he should eat at home. So that when you gather together, you will not come together under judgment. So we see today the seriousness of which Paul is saying this. right? The issue at hand. They were living in a self-serving manner among one another. The self-giving nature of the gospel and the call for us, for our lives, our behavior, our relationships to reflect the self-giving nature of the thing that we celebrate in the Lord's Supper together. Would you bow your heads with me today? Today we're going to conclude our time. Today we're going to conclude our time together by taking the Lord's Supper. But in light of a text like this that turns our full attention in the, in, in the time of, of the sermon to focus in on the Lord's Supper and the, the importance of examination, I want us to take just a little bit of extra time here today to do this. And so we are going to take the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. But before, I've asked Brad and the band to come and to lead us in a song of, of worship. As they lead us today, some of you, you may want to stand and sing. For some of you, in just a moment of examination and the relationships in your life, relationships in, within the body of Christ that's a part of this church or in another church. Maybe you just need to sit and to be still before the Lord. Maybe today you, you'd want to come forward to these steps up front. It's just a symbolic gesture of, Lord, I'm bringing everything to you. I'm laying all that I am before you as I examine my life and I see that, God, I, I don't want to come before the table in an unworthy manner. That this would be a moment of repentance for you. That means to turn from your sin and to turn towards the Lord. Hey.
thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we hope, again, that you were uh, encouraged by what God had to say for you and for your life. I just want to extend an invitation for you today. Maybe today you realize that you need Jesus in your life. Maybe today you just need to take that next step in your spiritual walk, or maybe you've got a spiritual need, and I want you to know that we would love to come alongside you and serve you any way that we can. Feel free to reach out to us at firstwest.cc, or you can call the church, 318-322-5104, and we would love to help you in what God is doing in your life. Have a great day.